Welcome to the Wrath of the Ocean's podcast. Two Gen X friends who discuss horror, fantasy, and science fiction books and topics. I'm Ron in Seattle, and he was a scientist who created a bio-restorative formula. After thugs blew up his Cape Cod lab, he was set on fire and ran into the cranberry bogs to save his life. He emerged as the cranberry thing, and now he has the most rejections from the Justice League for non-compelling superpowers, and he's your only friend you both invite over and serve at dinner. It's Jake <laughs> in Boston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a good call, Ron. I really, I really enjoy cranberries. They keep my uh, urinary tract up and running, and uh, you know they're they're pretty tasty too. So, <laughs> especially dried. Well, listeners, I should know because my, my special opening uh, is because this is episode sixteen, and we're covering Swamp Thing, and we're focusing on. Alan Moore's tenure as the the, the writer for, for Swamp Thing. But um, Jake is a big fan of Swamp Thing. In fact, in, in a weird way, this, this episode is kind of a sequel from our last episode because Jake brought up 1986 as a great year for comic books and an article we found on Nerdist. And, um, it, it, and we talked about Swamp Thing a bit in the last episode. It made me realize that I still hadn't read Swamp Thing after all these years. Shame. So... So it gave me a chance to read the Saga Swamp thing, which is available on. I, I got it on Amazon, but there, I've got three of the books um, from Alan Moore, and they're just beautifully illustrated. Um, it, you know, if you no longer have the comic books, they're great because they put everything together. Even even the covers of of the issues are are together there, so it's quite enjoyable to read. Anyway, but I'll let Jake get into our topic of Swamp Thing today. Jake, well, why don't you kick it off? Okay, I'm I'm really really happy to be talking about this because it's sort of a, as far as my nerddom goes, you know, Swamp Thing was really a formative uh, book for me. I used to go to uh, Bop City Comics in Framingham, or was it Natick? I can't remember. With my good friend Doug Miller, who Doug, if you're out there somewhere, I miss you, buddy, and I'm sorry we fell out of touch. And you know, give me a call or. I remember Doug. Yeah, he's a good guy. He is a good guy, and I hope he's doing well. But, um, you know, he was my uh, fellow comic book nerd. Uh, and this was the book that really, you know, it, it definitely meant a lot to me. Um, somewhere kicking around in a, probably a non-airtight, moldy box. <laughs> you know, I have all of the original Alan Moore uh, Swamp Thing issues. Yeah. And, yeah, they're not worth anything, I'm sure, um, in their current <laughs> condition. But someday I'll find them again crack the crusty pages of those. Now I have to ask you, Jake, before you move on with Swamp Thing, like what compelled you to buy Swamp Thing in the first place? Like I said in the last episode, I used to think to myself when I watched, you know, saw the these covers, I went, you know, who would who would read this this comic <laughs> book about this water Sasquatch? I mean, I never bothered to open it and I just but I'd always see the covers and certainly the covers were always compelling though, but I, I just always thought, who would read this comic book? What what compelled I mean, I, you to buy Swamp Thing? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> you were no, drawn I, to I, Swamp Thing. <laughs> I, I I um yeah, I, I really do wish that I could tell you the, the, the answer to that. It could be, um, you know, the movie came out. Yes, yes. Um, the same year that Swamp Thing was relaunched. Uh, and I, I'd like to say it's because I loved Adrian Barbeau so much that I wanted to, you know, 
<laughs> check out, check out the Swamp Thing comic, but it really was not a great movie. Yeah, we, we should um, add that um, uh, Ray Wise starred yeah. as Alec Holland, who is Swamp Thing, who is best known as Leland Palmer in, in Twin Peaks. So I, yeah, true story. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, that one was, was that the one with uh, Louis Jordan in it as well? Or was that the second one? I don't know. Yeah, it, it had a not not horrible cast, um, and it wasn't bad, but it was it was awfully hokey. It was pretty darn cheesy. <laughs> that that wasn't it. But I, I may have been drawn to the covers. Okay, um, because we're talking about this is the um, the John Tottleman, uh, Stephen Bissett era. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or mu- much of the Alan Moore run was with those artists and and fellow creators in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. There really was a lot of uh, creative uh, synergy amongst the writers and artists at that yeah, time. Yeah. They really were very compelling covers. And I, it may be that I read some Alan Moore. He did do some really uh, terrific work for DC Comics back in the day, you know, including, uh, and I don't know what year it came out. So including one of the, and I think in a lot of people's minds, best Superman story of all time. And in fact, I'm, I'm looking at that now. That was in 1985. So that was post- that was that was after he started Swamp Thing, but that was uh, for the man who has everything, which you should just check out. Like anyway, um, and then he did one in 1986 called it was I think it was two maybe two um, different issues called Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Two really fantastic Superman stories. I don't even like Superman. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm not a huge Superman fan, but um, th- these are definitely worth checking out. Um, and you can get those, and there's an Alan Moore, uh, DC Universe by Alan Moore is the name of the collection. You can get a lot of the stuff that he wrote yeah. with DC in one package. And that's, well, if you're an Alan Moore fan, definitely worth having. That's great. But I, 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 you're definitely lucky to have you know, gotten into Swamp Thing just right when that Alan Moore tank yeah. started. So. Yep. I, it was just luck, I think, more than anything else. It's like, oh, that looks interesting. And I picked it up. I was like, wow, this is great. Like this isn't like anything that I've read before in comics. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it's the so it's the book that launched John. Uh, everybody calls him Constantine now, but there was a uh, there was a letter I think that was written back during the initial run where Alan Moore said it, it's it's Constantine, <laughs> like his name should be pronounced Constantine. I'm going to call him Constantine anyway because that's what everybody else yes. calls him but that it was during the alan moore run that this character was introduced between swamp thing and, and uh hellblazer uh an entirely new line of comics was established which was the vertigo imprint for dc comics and those were aimed at adults yeah, so i remember you getting the the hellblazer comic probably in 87 i think that's when it came out but i have to look it up for, to be sure but um so it wasn't like right at 86 but um, I remember you getting Hellblazer, and I really enjoyed that that first comic book. That was my first real exposure to Alan Moore, and a lot of those elements I see in the in the Hellblazer, I, I definitely saw in the and read in in the Saga of the Swamp thing. Yeah, I, I, just Vertigo in general was a great imprint. I think they did Doom Patrol. They had the Sandman, uh, so Neil Gaiman kind of got. I wouldn't say that was yeah that, that really was I should say that, yeah. that was kind of a launch, um, but there there was uh and then there were some Sandman spinoffs and it was it was just a great great imprint really changed comics in a lot of ways so uh, and that all started with Alan Moore and the, yeah the well before we get into the Alan Moore's tenure of Swamp Thing why don't you give the listeners a brief overview of the Swamp Thing character in general and how it ended up in Alan Moore's hands yeah so it's it's 
you know, it started out as a great comic uh, by, by two really influential uh, people, Bernie Wrightson, um, whose, whose style is really, um, you could spot it relatively easy after you've sort of, uh, you know, read uh, or read a few of the comics in which he's, he's done the artwork. And Len Wein, uh, I had to look that up because I always thought it was pronounced wine, but it's Wein, apparently, uh, who is the writer. They debuted uh, Swamp Thing in July of 1971 in the pages of the DC comic House of Secrets. Uh, it was number 92. And uh, House of Secrets, I think that was the one that had, um, it had Cain uh, and Abel in it, two characters who show up again and they sort of get transmogrified in Alan Moore's hands into basically the spirits of the biblical Cain and Abel. And uh, Cain is constantly killing Abel, who's constantly being resurrected. And they are sort of the storytellers. They're kind of like the creep from Creep Show, or, you know, if you've read any of the, um, any of those sort of horror comics of the time, the EC comic horrors of the time, it was always like a creature or a witch or something who introduced or set the background for the story and then came up with a terrible pun at the very <laughs> conclusion of the story. Cain and Abel were... Basically, they serve that role in, in um, House of Secrets. Uh, but his uh, his initial um, appearance, he was Alex Olson. At the time, there was no the time and place were a little vague, so you knew it was sometime in the early 1900s. Alan Moore would later establish it as 1905 with some retconning. The story was slightly different. So he was a scientist who worked with uh, another scientist and friend who secretly was in love with his wife and blew up the uh, by, by sort of altering some chemicals in this thing that he was working on, blew up the laboratory and then buried uh, this guy, Alex Olson, in the swamp, in a nearby swamp. Alex Olson, you can figure out what happens next. He comes back to life and he's this hideous swamp creature. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the friend bites it and gets his just desserts and, and all that. So um, that was that initial kind of, that was the launch of Swamp Thing. Yeah. Um, and then he was resurrected for a solo title in 1972. From Alex Olson, he becomes Alec Holland. And he's moved to a contemporary setting. And he's still a scientist. But now he's working on that bio-restorative formula that you mentioned the term into cr- Cranberry Man. Um, <laughs> uh, he's, so he's working on this bio-restorative formula for the U.S. government. And he's in a uh, secret swamp-based lab in Louisiana. And that gets blown up by bad guys. He's covered in blazing goo, plunges into the bayou, and you know what happens. Emerges as a swamp thing. Emerges as a swamp (laughs) thing, right. Um, And in the course of that run, Bernie Wrightson and Len Wein, we sort of get his his arch nemesis shows up, Anton Arcane, Arcane's uh, niece, who's Abby Arcane, who eventually becomes a swamp thing's love interest, Uh, an Interpol agent, or at least at the time he's an Interpol agent named Matt Cable, who's kind of his frenemy and initially pursues him, you know, in a kind of a Hulk like fashion to um, <laughs> like the reporter in the, in the incredible Hulk. So, yeah. Same movie. idea. Yeah. So he's pursuing him across the globe, but uh swamp thing saves him a couple of times and eventually, you know, becomes friends with the swamp thing. And so that run goes for uh, 24 issues. That's, that's the end of the swamp thing for, uh, for a while until 1982 DC resurrects the, uh, the Swamp Thing yet again to build on the buzz around this. Wes Craven, by the way, is the, um, was the director for the original Swamp Thing movie. Um, so to build on that buzz, they relaunch Swamp Thing. Okay, um, great. It, 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 I did read in the introduction, and 
saga of the swamp thing in book one that len ween he created swamp thing because he was on the subway on his way to meet his editor and he had to come up yep. with a story idea and he came up with it on the subway you know on you know on the way to work you know that moment of him riding on the subway and just coming up with this idea of swamp thing but it was know, that swamp it. thing i'm doing a thing on the swamp. yeah yeah like yeah, that yeah. swamp thing and that's what ended up um you know sticking yeah, that's right. He just called it that swamp thing, and then it just became the name. But sure, it, it that's should a be July noted. of seventy one. But oh, go ahead. I, I, oh I'm yeah, and it should be noted. Spot. Yeah, it should be noted too that Len Wein is the creator of a beloved character from the X Men, the Wolverine. So uh, that should be noted as well. Yeah, he's so got he's, chops. He, yeah, he's got chops. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one might wonder if he was reading or rereading the uh, Marvel May launch of man thing oh oh yeah that's right yeah so it happened in the same year may of 1971 uh swamp thing was debuted in uh, 19 in july of the same year from everything that i've read it's just a coincidence right <laughs> so, as always as, yeah, as always. always it's just like, but but dc and marvel are constantly ripping each other off yeah, right yeah, you know it's, yeah. it's just like perpetual kind of yes. thing but 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 uh all accounts hereof say no that this, this one was just a coincidence yeah i find yeah. that really hard to believe but i'm gonna run with it because yeah. uh, bernie wrightson and len Wein are such um you know they're such terrific kind of if you read comics there's household names right so they're they're yes. a brand yeah so i, I want to believe that this just this just happened spontaneously <laughs> it's a, i was on the subway reading the man thing yeah no that's the part he leaves out right <laughs> And Wait, said, I can do this swamp thing too. Let's swap out man <laughs> for swamp. Exactly. That yeah, didn't happen. Really, that did not that, happen. Yeah, that did not happen. Yeah, the thing, you know, the the, the thing business there, it's a, yet another coincidence. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, there's always been the like who wins in a fight, man thing or swamp thing. And I would have to say to you, it depends on which era of swamp thing you're talking about. Like the Alan Moore swamp thing would would kick man things ass. Yeah, yeah. Like just beat the shit out of him. But um but that has never happened. And and there's there's been I don't know when the last Marvel DC crossover was, but um <laughs> I, I don't think there's ever been a man thing swamp thing crossover. And there's so much blad blood blad blad blood. <laughs> Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. There's so much bad blood between the two publishers at this point that who knows if there's ever going to be another crossover. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, but if you guys are listening out there, come to terms with one another. Let's see that Swamp Thing, Man Ver Thing crossover or team up and and you know make an old man happy. <laughs> well, you know what's going to happen. Even if it happens, Jake, it'll it'll end up being a tie. Because you can't have one beat the other. It'll be like a, it'll be a back and forth thing, and finally they they say, "I I give you my respect, man." Thing it's the same thing, small <laughs> thing, and we well, part peacefully. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, that's the um the there was a team up or a couple of team ups where uh, Marvel and DC actually asked the fans to decide who would want win the yeah. battle. So that's how uh, I think Superman beats maybe the Hulk or Thor or something like that. And, okay. Um, and that was all, you know, that was all based on fan voting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that's not the way. I, I, and to my mind, Superman should always get his ass kicked because he's just too powerful. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. deserves to lose. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so maybe someday we'll see a Superman versus um, Hyperion 
you know, maybe Hyperion yeah. will beat him, but yes, yes. Uh, who can say who's Hyperion, by the way, being the ripoff version of Superman that was developed by Marvel. Um, so there's yet another and, and like blatant ripoff. So, um, but, but well, conflicted in a way Superman was not, but we're yeah. getting, we're getting a little off topic, I suppose, but, yeah. um, um, but, but so the, the great thing is like you got involved in Swamp Thing right when the Alan Moore period started. Yeah. You know, you have this new fantastic title that you, you're bringing home and you're leaving through it. And what are some of the things that stick out for you? Well, other people are dating. And, yeah. and, and, and now that you've done your reread of it, what, what sticks out to you as, a, as an adult? Yeah, I mean, what what sticks out to me, one thing that sticks out to me is how lonely I was as a teenager. <laughs> but um, <laughs> That's why you related to the Swamp Thing. He's by himself in the bayou. And <laughs> yeah, it's like, I wish I had a beautiful white-haired <laughs> girlfriend, <laughs> you know, to uh, mess around in the swamp with. Yeah, I, I, he, you know, it was a comfort. And, and I always really wanted to read that next issue. You know, in oh. a way, I didn't always feel about comics, but I was, I was like, God, I can't wait until the next oh, one yeah. comes yeah. out. And and that's, you know, that's still true when I true when I reread it, is that, oh, okay, I can probably finish one more issue yeah. before I do, you know, responsible adult things. <laughs> and so I actually, I reread um, the first, the, the Alan Moore period is recollected in uh, six graphic novels or, or, or collections right now, there's like a deluxe version called ultimate swamp thing or something like that. Uh, that's coming out or was just released. That's a hardcover and a slip case. Yeah. Which um, add that to the list of things that I would love to own at some point. Yeah. I read the first four of the six collected Alan Moore's kind of breeze through five and six, just to remind me because things at book four, there's a sort of a, there's a break in the narrative or a culmination of the narrative from the first three, you know, three to four books. Um, that's a good stopping place. And I got through those, loved them after this. I'm going to, I'm going to continue to finish. I'm going to do four, uh, five and six. I will continue to read, uh, and then may even go back to some of the later stuff as well. Uh, with the exception of the swamp thing issues where swamp things, daughter, uh, Tefe, is the swamp thing and those I could, I could live without those. But um, for me, there's only one real swamp thing and it's, it's a uh, Alec Holland, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get more into the Alan Moore's tenure of swamp thing right after this break. This is J.S. Dewis, author of The Last Watch, and remember to enter the Last Watch book giveaway contest. That was J.S. Dewis, the author of The Last Watch, who we interviewed in episode 14. If you haven't heard that, please check it out. Uh, we are actually having a Last Watch book giveaway contest. There'll be two winners total, and one of the books is actually signed by the author. Uh, the rules are simple. Take a screenshot that shows you subscribe to the Wrath of the Oceans podcast and pick a number between 1 to 200. Send that screenshot and number to thewrathoftheoceans at gmail.com, and it's only one entry per, per subscriber. So uh, please enter. The contest ends on June 4th. So... That's going to be pretty soon, folks. So please enter. It's a 
it's a great book. And again, if you haven't heard episode 14, please listen to it. All right, back to Alan Moore's tenure on the swamp thing. Jake, why don't you hey tell there. us more about the the actual um it's it's hard to put all of his the entire story that he wrote in, in all the all the issues he wrote in what in, in twenty minutes. But uh, why don't you tell us about some of the, the the issues that really just stood out to you, the things you just thought were you know heightening the art of of comic book writing? Okay, so the Swamp Thing is reissued in 1982. A guy named Martin Pasco is the is initially the writer. He's also a screenwriter. And I did have to look him up. Um, I, I couldn't even remember his name. He, he actually did write for a lot of television, mostly sitcoms. And in 1980s, he wrote for a little cartoon called Thundar the Barbarian, which is one wow. of my faves. So I'll have to go back and look at that. He has to leave. He's got commitments, um, screenwriting commitments. And Alan Moore assumes writing for the, for the book, which initially is like, it's not great. The Pasco stuff is just not all that compelling. But uh, Alan Moore told, okay, you know, this is it hasn't really been working. So you feel free to run with this character and, and send it in any direction you want. And Moore does exactly that. The first thing he does in his tenure is kill the Swamp Thing. So he starts <laughs> by killing the Swamp Thing. And then he um, he brings the Swamp Thing back in this uh, issue called The Anatomy Lesson. <laughs> yes. And yeah, and so um up until that point, the swamp thing has been this guy, Alec Holland, who is turns into a monster. He assumes the form of a monster. Alan Moore takes that and throws it all out the window and says, No, this is a plant that just thinks it's Alec Holland. Like there's nothing Alec Hollandy about this at all. It's just uh <laughs> it's it's um the, the swamp thing is uh autopsied by this guy named uh, Jason Woodrow. And Woodrow discovers that all of these internal vegetable organs <laughs> that the Swamp Thing has are, are useless. They're just decorative. Um, and that it's, it essentially seems like here's a very complex plant organism that's trying to imitate a human being yes. and not terribly successful either. Yeah, and I thought that anambulation was completely fascinating because it it is just completely de deconstructing who Swamp Thing you know was. And Literally, for, me, for yeah. someone who I you know I was brand new to Swamp Thing when I was reading this, and and I but I understood reading it like yeah he's throwing a lot of stuff out the window now. He's telling you this is no longer a guy who's trying hard to become human again. He is not human at all. Right. And 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 all these things. And then when when the the Floronic man, Jason Woodrow, is doing his autopsy, you know, he's so puzzled by, you know, like he, well, this this creature has lungs, but they're not they're not real lungs. You know, they're you know, all these organs in there are just they're like fake plant organs. They don't have no they serve no function. But uh I thought the wildest part was he had for some reason <laughs> The swamp things are producing these things that kind of look like sweet potatoes. <laughs> yeah. And he shows it to, you know, his uh, friend, Abigail. Yep. And he, he says he's, he's been producing these, you know, things that look like sweet potatoes. And I think they're edible. And the next frame is her looking absolutely shocked by what he's saying. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then, like, a few frames later, he's actually eating the these things it's like oh my god and that's that's the part that was that whole issue was like this is alan moore here and this is 1984 I right mean, this yeah is, this is insane you know and um yeah so I, he's eating the swamp thing right so you have this kind of weird like 
and it's totally wacky and he plays yeah. up on that like later on so oh, yeah. abby and abby and the swamp thing eventually hook up right and um they're frolicking in the swamp and she's eating the hallucinogenic yam <laughs> and you know they're you know oh my god it seems like perhaps they're having like you know swamp sex. Um, <laughs> God. And there's a photographer in the swamp who's actually taking pictures of this at this point, and she comes out as like you know a sexual deviant. But I, you probably haven't gotten to that. But, um, <laughs> no. Yeah, but there there's like there's a like, Alan Moore is not unaware of the fact that it's really crazy to have people oh, yeah. being like the protagonist. Um, yeah, it, it takes it takes a total turn at at that point. I always feel like that anatomy lesson was like okay, I'm really gonna start pushing this now and- yeah so I, I was hooked like i read that first issue and i was like hooked like swamp thing like woodrow leaves like intentionally leaves the autopsy report out yeah yeah so that the swamp thing who is woodrow arranges to have the swamp thing because he's a plant he's not actually dead he only thought he was dead yes um and so he you know swamp thing jumps up reconstitutes himself <laughs> and the first thing he does is read the autopsy report and he's like oh sh- Oh shit! I'm not. Yeah. I'm not even human, right? Yeah, and yeah. of course, he goes berserk. Yes, yes, right. And the first thing he does is track down the guy who brought him in. Yeah, it's who, like, yeah, yeah, who's yeah. who? Who had him killed, or yeah. you know, and then and then autopsied, yeah. and things don't go so well for uh, for him. Yeah, I, I thought um, just to give the listeners some you know flavor of what this uh, this um comic book looks like it's it's very rich in the illustrations because you know swamp thing when he learns that he's not human that he's this living plant he's obviously going through a huge identity crisis at this point you know so is he really not human anymore and to see that internal dialogue illustrated it's it's really amazing for for a comic book that was created in 1984 again i'm you know the x-men to me were the height of art and story at the time and this is nothing like that at all. It's it's um it I won't say it surpasses it, but it, it is something highly imaginative. So I I would certainly recommend for the listeners to at least pick up you know book one of the Saga Swamp thing because that that is a very interesting issue where he's going through his identity crisis. And yeah, how, it, how you illustrate it is is it yeah. could have been very difficult, but they they do a, a wonderful job of doing that. The uh, the Tuttleman and and Bissett artwork is amazing. It's incredibly detailed. So the Swamp Thing, uh, no offense to Bernie Wrightson, you know, who's a great artist in his own right, uh, but there was sort of um, the body of the Swamp Thing yeah. was mostly green shot through with roots. Like there wasn't a, a ton of detail yeah. in that in that rendering of the Swamp Thing. And then uh, these guys come along and every sort of nuance of this thing that's like assembled as pieces of plant. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very wonderfully done artwork. Um, and then also, I, you know, I read the X-Men at that time too. And that appealed to me as that appealed to the teenage me as a, as a, as a teenager, you know? Yes. Yes. I don't know if I would go back to that era of the X-Men. Absolutely. Coming back to this, to this era of the swamp thing is like, it's, this still appeals to me. Like, yes, still, yes. still great. You know, Nightcrawler, by the way, was my favorite character. <laughs> um, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he just worked for me at the time. And then he got, got religion later on. <laughs> but, um, uh, but so the, the, the anatomy lesson, it's, I think it's an important issue. And then now that he's learned what he pad. is. Yeah. Yeah. It's the launch pad. Yeah, so so then he's um, trying to figure out who he is. Uh, he eventually f- finds Alec Holland's bones, 
and has a dialogue with essentially with the ghost of Alan yeah. Pollen. We're not even sure if it's actually a ghost or if this is all playing out in his head. Yes. Um, and then he buries the bones and at that point experiences some level of peace or, you know, or comes to grips with the fact that, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm this plant that thinks it's Alec Holland and even goes so far as to say, Abby, Abigail, um, you can, you can call me whatever the hell you want. You call me Alec if you want, I don't care. Um, but that's not who I am. So he, he, he eventually sort of resolves that identity crisis. And over the course of that crisis, Woodrow, meanwhile, has he's eaten the yam <laughs> and he has communed with nature, with the green. Yes, right? yes. And has uh, he's gone a little off the deep end. So here's this this uh, really uh, bit player villain, the Floronic man, uh, who, who doesn't have a you know, he doesn't have a really um sophisticated backstory and he always ends up getting his butt kicked right he's never won anything in his life but he communes with the green and as a result of this communion with the green his powers get all amped up and he starts going to town right on (laughs) uh on the on the communities and um nearby communities uh in louisiana and just wreaks havoc right yeah and um, it, it gets so bad that they have to call in the justice, justice league of america league. That's and what I, there is a funny line i think it's flash who says this because you're right about floronic man he was always a stupid player and i think the flash says something like i can't believe the floronic man is is a world threat i think we we, we kicked his butt so many times before and now it's come to this i mean they're it's because it's becoming a world crisis and he's taking over like the world's vegetation. Right. And he's able to do, he's able to kill people with vines and uh, it's not, it's not as graphic as it can get with Alan Moore. Um, If you've ever read the miracle man, have you read any miracle man? Oh yes. Yes. Miracle man. Yes. Yeah. 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 So there's, there's a a famous kind of issue there where, um, and I think the writer at the time was, um, or the artist at the time was John Tolliban. It might have been Stephen Bissett, but I can't remember. Where the villain just, it's a massacre, right? And at the yeah. time, it was controversial because it was so graphic. But something similar is happening in this book, uh, a little little bit less extreme. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he's like, he's blowing people up because he's able to create more oxygen um, with his plant life, strangling people and just doing some really horrible things with his new plant powers. So yeah, they call in the Justice League, and the Justice League is like, "What's Woodrow like? What's that all about?" What's interesting is um, I got the feeling, Jake, that again, Alan Moore was working still in the constructs of yep. wrapping up comic book issues within you know two to three issues. You know, you couldn't keep this saga going on with the Floronic Man destroying the Earth forever, right? So right. they kind of wrap it up quickly. I think it's. I think his name is Spitfire from the Justice League, who somehow comes up with this technique to reduce the oxygen, and they basically defeat the Floronic Man fairly quickly to the point right. where he's disintegrating. And but the Floronic Man ha- the, subsequently he has an identity crisis. Oh, okay, right where he you remember the spray can that he uses to put to, to paint. Oh the yeah, yeah, himself? yeah, yeah. So he's decided no, you know. Actually, I'm a I am a human being, and you know I, I'm not responsible for all this carnage. And <laughs> he gets caught, carted away ultimately to the uh, 
to the funny part uh, to, Arkham, to, 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 to Arkham yeah <laughs> yeah where where all the good villains end up eventually but uh, so that's <laughs> that's what happens through you know, Woodrow is at that point out of the picture for a very long while subsequently you have the swamp thing gradually developing his own relationship to this power the green but in the in these or the early Alan Moore issues he's not really sure the extent of his power like he doesn't know quite what he's able to do so early on he encounters this uh monkey king thing uh and that's at the, that's sort of at the conclusion of that first collection where he needs help like he's not he's not quite there yet he's he hasn't like you know, fulfilled he, his destiny or lived he needs up. a yoda he needs, he needs a, yoda. a yoda and this yoda at this point happens to be another favorite character of mine the demon the demon okay yeah who is a demon that shares a body with a human in this case it's mostly the demon who is providing uh the assistance to the swamp thing in dealing with this menace that is going after these kids in a um uh, a daycare center for autistic kids that abby abigail works for he's basically charged himself with taking care of this monkey king thing but it, it's too much at the time for the swamp thing and then wild nuttiness ensues there's a guy who gets impaled by a, a swordfish and uh, all kinds of good stuff like that. But it also sets the tone for the comic or resets the tone for the comic with its uh, sort of occultism, uh, where this Monkey King is summoned up with a Ouija board. It sets the stage for everything that is to come, which is Alan Moore's great American Gothic uh, storyline that threads through the, the next two books. And that's the, that to me, that's like the meat of the Alan Moore Swamp Thing run. Okay, I can't wait that because I do have books two and three. The Sag of the Swamp thing. That's is that in two and three that the American Gothic storyline. Uh, that's when yeah, that's when most of the American Gothic um, storyline right. happens. Good, can't uh, wait to start that. Yeah, and it's it's really good stuff. It's a reintroduction of some characters that again are like bit players. Arcane comes back. The Phantom Stranger. I don't know if you know about that character or not, but he is. No, I don't know that one. Alan Moore actually rewrote his his origin story. He's sort of an angel that was unable to decide which team he was on, basically, during <laughs> the fall. Uh, and as a result, he's not at home in heaven or in hell. But he's uh, he sort of guides the Swamp Thing through recovering Abigail, who is killed by Arcane oh, and cast down into the wrong location, down into hell. <laughs> so the Swamp Thing goes and retrieves her, her with um, this, the Phantom Stranger's help. Uh, Dead Man shows up in that. That's, that, that happens in the, uh, a Swamp Thing annual number two. Swamp Thing annual number two. And he they get Abby back. Uh, Swamp Thing meets the Spectre. Uh, so all these great occult characters. And re, revisits the, uh, the demon, because now he's talking to the demon in hell, as opposed to the demon when he inhabits this, this other body. So that, th- that's all great stuff. There's a tribute to Pogo. Do you know Pogo? Yes, Pogo? yes. And I had read about this in, in Wikipedia that he throws Pogo in uh, one of these. Yeah, it's, a, it's an issue called Pog. Um, the, P- Pogo is famous for the phrase, uh, we have seen the enemy and it, he is us or it is us. I don't know if you remember that line or not, but Pogo was a, a political cartoon with these swamp creatures in it. Pogo was an opossum. Uh, the the uh, artist, the, the illustrator and writer was uh, Walt Kelly. And it's uh, considered one of the more famous comic strips. And Alan Moore produces this great ode to Pogo in the course of that second collection. Um, 
and it's a it's a story called Pog that's definitely worth checking out. It's, it, that alone is worth getting the second edition <laughs> uh, or second collection. And then things st- really start to pick up. Cain uh, and Abel show up again. Swamp Thing and Abigail have weird swamp sex that I referred to earlier. <laughs> All that's leading up to really the kind of the heart of the American Gothic story in Collection 3, which contains one of my favorite two-issue stories called Fish Story and the Curse, where Swamp Thing revisits this community of vampires that he thought he had destroyed uh, or assisted in destroying by blowing up a dam. And the dam came through and, and vampires, of course, cannot survive in running water. I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely the case that they can't. So the water comes and sweeps away all the vampires. But unfortunately, there are vampires that are uh, encased in like freezer units and stuff like that, that are air to that are watertight. So the water settles, becomes stagnant. And that's okay for vampires. So the vampires develop this underwater community. They become aquatic. Lo and behold, John Constantine, Constantine. Uh, the <laughs> swamp thing introduces himself to swamp thing and says, you got to go there and, and clean that, clean up that mess that you made. And if you do that, I'll, I can tell you more about yourself. And so, so Constantine starts stringing swamp thing along on these various adventures. And the vampire thing is one of them. And it's really, uh, kind of terrific. Um, no, that's interesting that Constantine is, you know, I, I, I had the impression that he was introduced in Swamp Thing comic books, but it sounds like this during the American Gothic part of Swamp Thing that he's a pretty major character. Yeah. So um, he really is the sort of the Virgil for Swamp Thing at this point. Really, you start to see Swamp Thing recognizing how much power he has in that issue uh, or in the second issue of that, that two-part vampire story it, where Swamp Thing basically becomes, I don't know if I could show you the picture. You guys can't see it at home, but it's right there. You see the swamp thing? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, you see what he's done. Yeah, he basically opens up the entire river. He becomes this colossal thing, right? Oh, wow. This gigantic mountain of swampness uh, with his face peeking up and like redirects the river into this community of vampires and kills all of them. And at that point, you realize as the reader, you're like, oh, yeah, the swamp thing's actually like okay, he actually, he could potentially be super powerful. Yeah, and it gradually emerges that indeed the Swamp Thing is an elemental, variously called a plant elemental or a wood elemental or whatever, and that he has a sort of absolute or godlike control over plant life, uh, and not just on Earth, uh, elsewhere in the universe. Okay. Uh, yeah, which happens in, uh, in books um, five and six, Swamp Thing... It's Swamp Thing in Space, which is interesting. To me, less compelling storyline, but uh, but still taking Swamp Thing in a completely different direction yeah. and just showing how, you know, he's one of the most powerful creatures in the or, or beings in the Marvel Universe. Whereas before he was just kind of a muck guy who was relatively strong and uh, could regrow his hands. Alan Moore has, uh, takes and creates this godlike entity out of the Swamp Thing, toured around by John Constantine with the ultimate end of addressing an evil that is kind of underlying all of these American Gothic storylines. There's a story, yeah. a very controversial story called the curse about a, uh, a woman werewolf whose lycanthropy occurs in conjunction with uh, her period. And Alan Moore took a lot of heat or DC took a lot of heat for this, but 
for a, a man daring to write a story about a woman's menstrual cycle in a comic book. Uh, but it's actually a really good read uh, and one that I recommend. I, you know, I, I don't know if I should find it offensive or not, but I think it's really <laughs> terrific. Uh, and, and it's, it's a, a, to my mind, it's a feminist work. It actually, I, I think it's really well done. And yeah. I, I, I don't think it's offensive. It, but. It, in general, it sounds like Alan Moore, he pushed that. Well, that's that, why, that, that right? Title Nobody's seen anything could. like this. And, and, and I'm assuming he, it went well into 86, you know, the year of the, the great comic book revolution. It must've been tough for the title after he left um, to lose his creative thoughts. And I'm assuming that the title maybe suffered in sales after Alan Moore left, or uh, I'm not sure of the history of that, but uh, yeah. So for yourself as a fan, like you, you obviously were still reading comic books even after Alan Moore, but for yourself, when, when he left Swamp Thing, was it just a different book for you at that point? It was. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I subsequently have picked up later issues of the Swamp Thing, and no- nothing holds a candle to Alan Moore's version of the character. I mean, really. So, oh, that's too bad. Um, and Alan Moore is like, he really will take these bit characters, uh, like uh, Dr. Occult and uh, Mento and. Uh, yeah. Floronic Z- man. <laughs> Zantana, who, who's like kind of was like a kind of a second rate character at the time and her father. And they all so they all get together in one colossal event that signals the end of that um, fourth book where this horrific evil is revealed. And it's like huge and horrific, really is horrific. Yeah. And you have all these creatures, these, these uh, powerful beings confronting him, like Dr. Fate. Yeah. I don't know if you remember Dr. Fate or not. Yes, I remember uh, Dr. Fate. Yeah. The demon, the specter, right? All these guys, he's thrown all these like occult and like magic uh, DC characters that don't, haven't had real, you know, a lot of time in the sun. Yeah. Uh, and in that way, it's almost like jumpstarts those storylines as well um, for other writers. Uh, and they all, they all kind of coalesce around this, um, this annual issue that's super long for a comic book. And that's another thing is like, so you don't see many comic books that, that go, I don't remember how many pages it was, but it was like a really long issue. Um, and just terrific with these characters that nobody was doing anything with. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that, um, it, it, it certainly was that one of the great runs in, in comic book history. And I can't help but think that, that other comic book writers were, were reading Swamp Thing and thinking, how do I push my title? How do I push this to the next level? And um, you know, clearly, you see that in '86, right? Know, the, with with the with the quality and the the daring approach that comic books took at that time. You know, I mean, I I don't know if there would have been a dark dark night without a dark night returns without Swamp Thing or or a a a year one uh, Batman or some of the uh, uh, some of the Daredevil. Um, storylines that were going on at the time and the, the other countless ones you mentioned last episode. So I, right. And I these are all think- mainstream, mainstream comics or mainstream comic characters for yes. major imprints that, um, you know, Alan Moore has set the stage for these, for these, uh, comic book publishers to really, really push the envelope. And the yeah. result is this mat, this really great, like uh, almost comic book Renaissance, yeah. that happens where the stories become complex yeah. um and you know that you do away with stuff like everybody's saying blast you blah 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 you know yeah. i'll get you um and you the, the storylines become more sophisticated the narratives yeah. are complex uh and and the alan moore is 
a lot of that is is owed to I think Alan Moore in a way that yeah. I think most most uh, readers recognize. Yeah, you know, I, it, I don't. It's, it's um, Alan Moore is hardly unsung. You know. Yeah, so. it, it's it's amazing. Um, you know, again, the illustrations are great. The writing is terrific. Uh, you know, I. It's funny. You you and I are both big David Lynch fans, and, and I wouldn't I wouldn't call this Lynch game per se, but if you're someone who loves David Lynch you might get into the swamp thing. So um, it's because of just the creativity of it is, is, is spellbounding. Yeah. So but he, um, he really, he takes these, these very like overplayed characters. He's got werewolves. He's got zombies. He's got vampires, puts an entirely new spin on, he puts a new spin on everything, right? It's just really fresh and, and it definitely holds up. It still holds up reading it now, at least to me, it does. Yeah. Well, readers, um, our, our listeners, the, um, Saga of the Swamp thing is available in in several books. I think Jake, you said six books total that that represents this, all. This, yeah, this set is six books. But again, there's like a deluxe edition that just came out, a, a hardcover slipcase. I'm pretty sure. If I had it all to do over again, I would probably hold out for that. I mean, they're that good. That they're, <laughs> yeah, they're they any, are. Any comic book readers collection, they're they really are. Yeah. yeah, and it, if if you uh, if you want to get introduced to it, I, I again, I bought. Um, the Sagas Swamp Thing books one through three, and I can't wait to finish books two and three. But it they it's it they're fun to read. You know, again, if you're a big comic book fan, but you've never read Swamp Thing like myself, then please please go into it because it, I, I I agree with Jake. I mean, these these comic books are from the '80s, and it doesn't read like an '80s comic book that I read when I was a a teenager. They they you know it's still a compelling story to read. But yeah, definitely pick up Sagas Swamp Thing, and also um, Swamp Thing. You know he's a pretty popular character. I, there are a few podcasts on Swamp Thing. Oh, I didn't available. know that. Yeah, there's um there's one called Swamp Things, and they're actually going uh, through each uh, issue of the saga of the oh, Swamp Thing from beginning to end. So for those of you who are really crazy about Swamp Thing, <laughs> and you we kind of rekindled your your love of the character, uh, definitely check out the Swamp Things podcast. I, I listened to it over the weekend. You know, they're they're obviously big fans of, of Swamp Things, so it's it's uh, fun to listen to and uh, very insightful as well. Um, Jake, any any um, advice you have for our listeners who want to, you know, get into the Swamp Thing? I mean, do, I mean, for example, like skip the movies, you know, or you know, yeah, the, the movies watch, are not watch Constantine. The or, movies or are not great. The, um, <laughs> I have to say, there was a short lived. It was one season swamp thing revival series that was not bad it had um was his name will Patton in it i think some teen hot throb woman uh, or she was at one point and i think you can get that i think it's free now i actually ended up buying it um, <laughs> which is sort of crazy uh for me but but it, it's definitely good enough version of the swamp thing and it's got jason woodrue in it which is great definitely worth worth viewing you know it's, yeah. it's actually pretty good but is does it is it as good as out as reading the alan moore series no no way yeah, like there's yeah. there's been nothing as good as that yeah well what i find interesting about swamp thing you know if you compare him to say someone like batman who oh he, he goes up against yeah, batman and, yeah oh really okay I, I, yeah I, he actually not. um i think i can't remember which it's another annual i think but he um increases the floor in gotham city he basically <laughs> turns Gotham City into an Eden. Of course, Batman doesn't like anybody screwing around with Gotham City <laughs> without his permission. So Batman, it's Batman versus the Swamp Thing. Oh, wow. Which by that stage in the Swamp Thing's life, if Swamp Thing wants to kill him, basically he can take the flora in a, in a human being's throat. Oh, and wow. Grow the flora out and suffocate. Like, 
So really, it's Swamp Thing really won that battle. Swamp, Swamp Thing's pulling his punches. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. you know, Batman eventually uh, convinces <laughs> him this is this is not the right approach to yeah. make the world a better place. But um, what I find interesting with Swamp Thing, if you compare him to Batman, where Batman's had the sixties TV series, numerous movies, titles like The Dark Knight Returns, that you know he, he is somewhat someone you can kind of be flexible in terms of storytelling, and yet. The, the essence of Batman always remains, no matter what. If you're watching the, the even the cheesy 60s series to the to the movies to the Dark Knight, there's still this goodness about Batman, right? He still has his identity. What I find interesting about Swamp Thing is, you know, he's had a you know couple movies, a TV series, numerous authors. Two TV series. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a not authors. as good one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wow. And there's numerous authors who have written about Swamp Thing, but that Alan Moore period is very special and and very unique. So, so for me to describe Swamp Thing to an average fan at this point, I would have to say, wow, I, I don't even know where to start because, you know, he, he originally started as maybe a basic more horror comic book creature and evolved in this great art, but it also has influenced, it's created, you know, these other media such as, you know, a TV series and movie that are a little different from the comic book. So, right. So it's 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 very interesting that Swamp Thing has had this big influence in the comic book industry. It's had, you know, different identities over over years, and it's it's spawned movies and TV. And yet, for 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 us to try to sum up Swamp Thing in, in one sentence would be very difficult, right? And it would be like with Batman, we could say, yeah, he was parent right. murdered when he was young, and he was always, he's always out for justice no matter what, <laughs> you know, and that's yep. Well, the yeah. Swamp Thing you got to say. So he he's called uh, a muck encrusted mockery of a man. <laughs> uh, it's terrible alliteration, but I think that was his. So that's what they they called him in the original series. And I think that that phrase resurfaces throughout the sort of history of Swamp Thing, and that's the idea. Like Swamp Thing is like he's swampy. He's a thing. He's like <laughs> he's a man, or he's a plant who thinks he's a man trapped in this creature. Yeah. Right. Um, and that that's kind of consistent throughout. Well, except Swamp, when he's a bad guy, which he is yeah. from time to time, but I won't get into that. Well, listeners, uh, what we've learned is Swamp Thing. He makes our hearts sing. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know there's a cartoon Swamp Thing as well? I didn't know that. OK. Did you know that that line that you just uttered is is the theme song for the terrible cartoon? That was All right, OK. I did, I did not know that. Yes. Yeah. Well, swamp thing, you make our hearts sing. And fo- and listeners, please uh, uh, pick up Saga of Swamp Thing, at least books one through three. No, one through four. Oh, one through four. One through if, four. If you're going to do one, just do one. But if you're going to do one and two, uh, do three and four. Yeah, I will say now I finished book one and I definitely want to read more. So it's okay to order books one through four right off the bat if you're someone who really loves comic books like yeah. Jake and I, and but you never read the Swamp Thing. So yep. please check Get it all out. Four. All right, everyone. We'll have all the information of the Swamp Thing in our show notes and we'll be right back after this break. Fake George Takai. Welcome back to the Return of the Archons podcast. That's my favorite Star Trek episode because I get possessed by Landrew and I become one with the body. <laughs> uh, that's that's not it. That's not what we're called, George. Um, 
We're it we're the not? wrath of the no, we're the wrath of the Ioceans. The Ioceans? Yeah, which is a nod to the famous um, Star Trek episode that I don't even know if you were in that one. Um, I don't believe I was. A piece in that of the episode. action. Yeah, and I I, I apologize for uh, not acknowledging you. So why did you invite me to do a voiceover for? You're not really George Sakai. I mean, that's the. <laughs> that's why we asked. You. This is fake George Sakai signing off. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know where to go with that. <laughs> well, that was fake George Sakai, folks. And yes, we are the Wrath of the Oceans. We're not the Return of the Archons podcast. So. <laughs> All right. Hey, Jake, what else have you been listening to? Actually, before we get into this, actually, well, I do want to do a follow-up because we talked about The Empty Man. Uh, yes. last episode and you got to see it and I'd I like to hear it. your feedback on that I it, was it the scariest horror movie I've ever seen I have to say no I mean I've I've seen scarier but uh, was it enjoyable yes absolutely I really enjoyed Great. it I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're happy with it yeah and I, I didn't know at the time that it was and, and I actually had probably my finger on the buy button for this uh, comic more than once. It was based on a comic character. Oh, okay. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. The Empty Man was uh, Boom Comics. Um, oh, yeah. 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 And I think that uh, I, it does seem that the plot for the movie is somewhat dissimilar from the comic book run, where I think what's kind of set up in that Empty Man movie has already happened. But I'm not, I'm not sure. But it was, it was good enough that I'm going to check out the Boom comic. Oh, good. Um, yeah. And I, I, like you, I would recommend this movie for a horror fan. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad you liked it because I thought the elements in that were just completely scary. I detailed that last episode. But Yeah, I, there I, is I'm one scene in that. that movie. Sorry, there's one scene in that movie that I thought was as creepy as anything I've seen. And that, there I agree with you. Um, there's a sort of a ceremony taking place and the ostensible protagonist is watching this ceremony. <laughs> yes. And, very dark. And oh, very, yeah. Very creepy. Yes, and you're yes. just waiting for everyone at the ceremony to notice that he's there. Yeah. yeah. And eventually they do. And that, like, yeah. Yeah, that that's, whole that's scene, a good one. Yeah. That yeah. That whole yeah. scene, like, when they start, like, they just set the scene up. He finds some place in the woods because he's trying to tra- track down this cult, you know, and I don't think he understands how evil this cult is. And there's a real evil spirit behind it yet. But he finds them deep in the woods and they're making this big bonfire and there's a big group of them, you know, perhaps hundreds of people and they are circling the the bonfire and then they start running very quickly around it. And the, the faster they run, the higher the bonfire gets through the sky and it seems to kind of pierce the, the night sky and something it's like they're opening up some evil that's occurring. And he's watching this in utter disbelief. And then the cult just stops running and looks in his direction it's, it's and, great and, because and it's like a is, bird scene. It's like yeah, a whole yeah. it, bird turning yeah. to look at him. Oh, yeah. That's it's really so great scary. And, it's, and again, this is in the nighttime. And so he he's looking going, well, they can't be looking at me. And so right. he, takes, he takes this one step back and they take one step forward as soon as he does that. And this goes on for a little bit. And then they start running after him. And he's like, I got to get the hell out of here. Yeah, no, and, and you know, it's so good. It's so good. So I, I hope that yeah. didn't scroll it for people. But that to me, it was the scariest part because I jumped up from my couch when that happened. And I was like, just yelling, like, get to the car, get to the car. <laughs> you were one of those guys. If you've been in the theater. Oh, Don't my go in there. God. Don't go I know. In there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's a great scene. I'm pleased that you like it, Jake. And, yeah, I did. I liked it very much. One thing that, that we talked about over text was you, you mentioned you saw Heredity. 
and hereditary. I, I thought hereditary, yeah, hereditary. Yeah. And I had never seen any of that director's work. Um, he made he made um hereditary, and what was the midsummer? Mid midsummer. Mid I actually liked Hereditary better, but Midsummer got a lot. I think the press was better for that. Yeah, my my oldest brother Paul saw uh, um, Midsummer in the theater. It was and and he told me that was one of the scariest movies he's ever seen. I have to admit, it it's been free on Prime TV for quite some time, and I still don't have the guts to see it. Watch <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, and I watch them I, both. I keep... They're both great horror movies. Yeah, um, yeah. Hereditary. Once you've watched Hereditary. You can actually see echoes of Hereditary in, I don't want to spoil it because it's a pivotal plot point, but in The Empty Man, there are some real similarities between them. Okay, interesting. Uh, you, you might have to give it some thought before they you know, emerge. What's happening in, in each case is, so, is not dissimilar. So those are good. Those are good bookend movies to watch, I think, together. Yeah. I do think Hereditary is scarier than, um, uh, than The Empty Man. Yeah, it's funny. I I read it. I forget the critic's name, but he he mentioned that Hereditary and Summers and Midsummer were so scary that he you know he said if you really don't think you can take it, at least read the Wikipedia um, because <laughs> it can kind of get you through it. If read you, the book. If, you, if you if you're trying to get understand what the movie was about, and I did read part of Midsummer on on uh, Wikipedia. It's funny, it doesn't sound nearly as scary when you're reading what happens, but then uh, you start thinking, okay, visually speaking, it must be incredibly intense to watch. So, but, yeah. You know, I, yeah. What's important about that movie, it's, it's absolutely saturated with light. All of it takes place in like the brilliant light of summer. And to make that, you know, that sort of illuminated setting to make that scary is not easy to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, um, you can't play tricks with darkness and, you know, when you have that kind of lighting. Yeah. Um, but it's just what's happening is so horrific that the light almost becomes part of this. It's hard. It's hard to explain without seeing yeah, it. But, yeah. Yeah. But that, you, that bit of it, like if you, if, if you can do scary in the daylight, like you're accomplished as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Like that's. <laughs> well, again, when, when we were speaking over text and you said hereditary was scarier, it, it, it instantly reminded me, yes, these are the two movies I have flagged as scary. Maybe as too hell. scary to watch. And, and I don't have the guts to watch it. You know, and uh, there was something about the empty man after seeing that review on Chris Duckman's uh, YouTube channel. I'm like, I just said, Oh, I just have to watch this. But I've, every review I've read of, of, Midsummer and Hereditary are this is probably the scariest movie you ever see, and I've I've just have not had the guts to watch them yet. But maybe this weekend I'll give it a try. If you're a fan, you got to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey Jake, what else have you been you know listening to or uh, watching or reading? Yeah, I know I blathered on about the swamp thing. I'm not even. I could talk about that for a whole other episode, but um, I I will quickly tell you a couple of things. So uh, I had been looking forward to the latest movie from Ben Wheatley. Uh, he did, uh, among others, he did Kill List. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Which no, no. Great little indie uh, horror movie. Uh, and A Field in England, which I also like very much. It's a black and white film. It's not quite, it's weird, but it's not necessarily a horror movie. And those I, I recommend highly. He also did uh, an adaptation of J.G. Ballard's High Rise. Oh, okay. You know, I, I High heard Rise of that one, well. yeah. High Rise had a great cast. It, I, I don't. I actually didn't like it as much as those as as uh, Kill List or Field in England. Okay, um, but it does have a really good cast, and it's not a bad movie. And unfortunately, the new one called In the Earth, 
to me feel it feel felt kind of derivative and, and even like kind of a riff on his other work so he's got okay like, uh close-ups of like uh insects and flora that you've sort of seen before in his other movies unfortunately i also had watched just prior to that an adaptation of a clive of a sorry not clive Barker, or a laird baron short story uh called 30 that's thematically similar and and to my mind is actually a better film and so that's the one i'm going to recommend to you okay uh, if you're a ben wheatley completist yeah, by all means, you should watch In the Earth. But I, to, to my mind, again, this is a movie called They Remain from 2018, based on a Laird Baron, Baron's short story that is has is similar in tone and in content and, and a better movie. So that's what uh, neither is a great movie. OK, um, but I would check out They Remain. Yeah, well, I'll, ch- I'll check out some Ben Wheatley's work because I, I, I've heard of High Rise, but I didn't hear of his other work until you mentioned it. So I'll check that out for sure. Yeah, a field in, in England not everyone was uh, crazy about. Um, it was shot in black and white, and it is a strange movie. Um, <laughs> but I really enjoyed it because I'm a strange guy. All right, well, that, that's right up my alley. I'm going to definitely watch it this weekend. I think I'll watch that instead of Hereditary. <laughs> All right, start with that. That's a good. That's a good idea. I I've, I got another one. I'd, I would want to talk about uh, Chio Yamamoto's Bloodthirsty trilogy. If you've heard of those, but the, they were created in the 1970s by. Toho Studio. Uh, name name the IP for Toho Studios that is famous. You can do Ultraman. <laughs> you, Ultraman. You want, no, you want to say Godzilla. Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> I get an Iocean black star for a black hole for that one. Well, they, maybe they did Ultraman too. I don't know. I actually, um, I'm gonna have to look that up. I'm not sure they did. I, I know Ultraman, but I don't know if they're Toho Studios. But in order to capitalize on the success of uh, Hammer's Dracula films during that same time period, so the Christopher Lee Dracula, they came out with these this trilogy of uh, vampire films uh, called The Vampire Doll, The Lake of Dracula, and Evil of Dracula. Um, they're not related plot-wise, and only one of them has a real like kind of Dracula connection to it. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all spare, they're all atmospheric, and they don't feel like Hammer retread, even if they're a little bit derivative stylistically. I don't know if they're great movies per se in fact they're probably not great movies but like if you're interested in japanese cinema of that time period they're really interesting artifacts even if you watch just one so my the one the one that gets mentioned most often is the vampire doll my favorite was actually the lake of dracula if you want to check out those there's a blu-ray transfer available from arrow films that has commentary from kim newman uh, the English writer and critic, um, and he—we might even talk about Kim Newman at some point on this podcast. The, it, really interesting artifacts, and at one point they were on Tubi. I watched okay. them on Tubi, and oh. if you can stay, if you can stand the commercial interruptions, that's a good way to watch them for free. All right, good. good. So. Well, I'm glad it's on Tubi. I'll definitely check it out because I've never heard of the, this uh, series before. I mean, I always equate Japanese, you know, horror movies of the of the sixties and seventies with you know Godzilla and, and the uh, bigger creatures, but I never heard of the series. So, I'll, so just I'll, to think I'll, that like Toho Studios did all the Godzilla movies and these movies, like they're there's a real, they're very different. Yeah, very it's interesting. Different. That's very interesting. Hey Jake, for my what else? Uh, since we did the Harlan Ellison episode last week, I decided to do a Harlan Ellison double feature, where I watched both the Demon of the Glass Hand. Yeah, and uh, the city on the edge of forever. Oh, well, good uh, for you! It was, it was quite enjoyable because uh, Demon of Glass Hand. I thought I was familiar with it, um, and I do remember elements of that story. But it was nice to sit down and actually watch the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was very creative. There was a great mood to it. Uh, my understanding was Harlan Ellison originally wanted this episode to be about a chase 
cross country and the producers well, and the director told them that, yeah, hey, we can't do that. So they ended up actually filming in the Baxter building. So for people who in, in Los Angeles, so for people mm. who are familiar with that, they'll be familiar with Blade Runner because that's the, the finale is in the Baxter building too. And you immediately recognize it as soon as you see it. So, But it's also very spare in a way that the Blade Runner, like like in the Demon with a Glass Hand, Yes, it's yeah. Really spare. There's not a whole lot of stuff in the Yes, in the yes. And so I, I found that it was just a, a great mood and effect. And Robert Culp is is really great as the the person with the who doesn't the, love the, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and with with the glass hand. So it's it's terrific. I would say that one of the things that struck out to me was you know again you're on a certain budget when you're doing this. So you can you can only you, you know you have to be creative. And I think they're very successful. But one of the things that made me laugh because it was you know in you know made in the '60s was you know you have this superior alien race who's trying to get his you know glass hand and they're inside this big building and the way they communicate to each other is by yelling like (laughs) he's over here like grade school kids during the you know during the recess before you know before lunchtime like hey arch he's downstairs hey 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 arch do you want to play kickball yeah, yeah, no, right. <laughs> right. It's a hard, it's hardly like Secret Service talking into the <laughs> Yeah, there's none of that. Yeah, so that yep. part I was laughing out loud because it's yep. funny, and they're always called calling out for Arch for some reason too. So um, <laughs> he's the best one. He's the guy. <laughs> yeah, he's the guy. He's the guy. So, so that part I found funny. But yeah, in terms of Harlan Ellison, um, great science fiction story, and. um you know, having having that 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 gut punch ending was um, was really great. And watching City of the Edge Forever, which you and I, Jake, have seen a million times, but it was one of the first times I sat down for a while and said, "Hey, this is a Harlan Ellison work. Try to find those elements of Harlan Ellison mm-hmm. that are also in the Demon with the Glass Hand and stuff that we read in uh, Deathbird stories." And that gut punch that Kirk gets at the end is yeah. pretty hard. And it's right when the first times I thought to myself, you know, hey, William Shatner. That's some great acting there because he he clearly is devastated at the end of that episode. So that's some of the um, Shat's finest work. Yeah, I, it, is. it really is. <laughs> yeah, interestingly, that scene plays out differently in the original Harlan. Oh, okay. Screenplay. Yeah, yeah. So Go you ahead. can get that. You can get that screenplay uh, in book form, but it's also been produced as a comic book. Uh, that's I think collected in one volume that you can get uh, as well. And I, I don't I don't remember what publisher it's out with. Um, but that's something that I mean to pick up at some point. Okay, yeah, but it was it was really really good. And one of the things I'm curious about, Jake, is there is some really great Kirk and Spock dialogue, as there always is in Trek. But in this one in particular, it's pretty humorous at times. You know, Spock mm-hmm. is clearly frustrated that he has to make you know he has to generate power to you know to get his, back to his tricord by getting you know using steampunk technology and uh he's frustrated with captain kirk at the time and telling him you know this is what i have to work with and and kirk is almost like yeah I get, you know do your thing and i'm going to talk to don't you don't worry about it i'm horny <laughs> <laughs> and that's that dialogue is hilarious but is that Harlan Ellison there, or is that I don't. I think it's Gene Kuhn who did the rewrites. Right? I, I I'd need to look at the. Yeah, I'd need to yeah. do a, yeah. a comparison. Yeah, I, I, I don't almost, know how much of it if, is Harlan. If that's the case, then maybe it is a great collaboration in that sense, where you know Harlan Ellison came up with this great story, but the 
may, I'm going to assume that some of the Star Trek writers kind of customized some of that dialogue for Kirk and Spock because the dialogue is great too between the two of them. Like, it's quite humorous. It's a fantastic episode of Star Trek, and yeah, I, that, yeah. that's the one. That's a kind of the disconnect, right? Yeah. But I love Harlan Ellison, but he is a he was a litigious, cranky man <laughs> who is unwilling to, you know, who is a purist about his own work, and so. I never really was able to acknowledge what a great episode it was in its own right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's too bad. But yeah, it's certainly great work. And I, so it, it was really enjoyable to sit down and, and think about it in terms of Harlan Ellison, the artist, and how he wrote. And you could see the elements of what he wrote in both episodes, mm-hmm. and then think to yourself, yeah, he he created this great foundation um, for sitting edge forever maybe that's not all him but you know you certainly see his writing in it and it, you see it with the deal with the glass hand it's just that it's that gut punch at the end that you get that is pretty amazing and um i really enjoyed that so yeah, it's like get that in a harlan ellison story right yeah again and again you'll get that twist at the end that's just yeah. a great read yeah and that makes me um you know again listeners we we did we just did a harlan episode uh, in episode 15 our last episode so please check that out it was actually we we had a great time making that one but yeah i i, I really enjoyed going back to these um these episodes after doing that episode that that uh, we just completed so yeah great fun well jake i really enjoyed talking about the swamp thing i, I, I get the feeling that, that we're gonna come back to this subject again because you know again it's hard to cover the saga of swamp thing all of alan moore's work in 40 minutes or less yeah at the very least i think we need to come back to alan moore because there's so much great material there you know he is to my mind he is the uh single most important well you got stanley i guess but he is one of the most important writers yeah 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 that whole medium yeah really in that post silver age yep you know, um, writing, you know, after the great Marvel, you know, 60s run, you know, in 70s, you would have to say Alan Moore is, you know, the giant at, at this, at and in the, in the early yeah, 80s. Yeah, you put him in the there with Stanley, stage. you put him in there with Jack Kirby, you know, yeah. like he's that important to the, to that medium. So, yeah, that, that's a good idea, Jake. Maybe we should do a whole Alan Moore episode uh, in the future. But yeah, I had fun and it was great to learn about your love for Swamp Thing. And now that I finally get to read it, I understand why it compelled you to read it. And it, it makes me understand what a much more, you're a much more sophisticated reader of of comic books, even in your in your teenage years. I I liked what you said where you when you said when you read the the Chris Claremont, John Byrne um versions of x-men that was great for teenagers and we enjoy it maybe we don't it maybe it's a little less enjoyable as an adult but i i can see why you know you would say even as an adult you like swamp thing now and it 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 makes me realize that you were at a very early age you were craving to read something more creative and and fantastic than you know that went beyond your your average comic book um, writing at the time, so I'm, I'm it's all born out of despair and loneliness. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jake, if 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 we have to, we should make our own Swamp Thing uh, title one time, and uh, I like Cram- the cranberry thing. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. cranberry thing. It's the cranberry thing. <laughs> when the cranberry thing will get his dude anytime you're at thanksgiving dinner he can control all cranberry sauce god what a power <laughs> and he can get everyone during the thanksgiving holiday <laughs> <laughs> but jake it's great you're the cranberry thing and you get to make your own sauce 
Yeah, I'm actually a self-saucing creature. (laughs) And, you know, cranberry sauce, you can have it after Thanksgiving. It's delicious. versatile. (laughs) On its own. Very versatile. And people don't understand that. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a power that few people realize has the magnitude of that ability. (laughs) Cranberry sauce. (laughs) Brought to you by Ocean Spray. Yeah, before we go, that's one thing we should point out. Ocean Spray uh, in no way sponsors yes, yeah. uh, this program. We just love, we're just cranberry sauce fans. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes, just remember that, folks. Cranberry sauce is, is a favorite for the wrath of the ocean. So, and the cranberry thing will be the next compelling superhero you'll see down the road, even though the Justice League of America says he's not very compelling. So, <laughs> all right, Jake. We'll see you Great next week, you, okay? All right. All right. Take care. And everyone, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.